Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 71, verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow, and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior being now come to the Mount of Olives and having entered with his disciples into the garden near it, whither he used to retire and pray, in this place he falls into a bitter and bloody agony in which he prayed with wonderful fervor and importunity. His sufferings were now coming on at a great pace, and he meets them upon his knees, and would be found in a praying posture. Learn, thence, that prayer is the best preparative for, as well as the most powerful support under, the heaviest sufferings that can befall us. As to this prayer of our Savior, in his agony, many particulars are here observable. As one, the time when he prayed thus extraordinarily, it was the evening before he suffered, just before Judas, with his black guard, came to apprehend him. And when he did come, he found him in a praying posture, our Lord teaching us by his example that when eminent dangers are before us, especially when our death is apprehended by us, it is our duty to be very much in prayer to God and very fervent in our wrestlings with him. Observe, too, the subject matter of the Lord's Prayer, that, if possible, the cup might pass from him that is, that he might escape the dreadful wrath at which he was so sore amazed. But what? Did Christ now begin to repent of his undertaking for sinners? Did he shrink and give back when he came to the pinch? No, nothing like this. But as he had had two natures, being God and man, so he had two distinct wills. As man he feared and shunned death, as God-man he willingly submitted to it. The divine nature and the human spirit of Christ did now assault each other with disagreeing interests. Again, this prayer was not absolute but conditional. Father, if it may be, if thou wilt, if it please thee, let the cup pass. If not, I will drink it. The cup of suffering, we see, is a very bitter and distasteful cup, a cup which human nature abhors. Yet doth God oftentimes put this bitter cup of affliction into the hands of whom he doth sincerely love. And when he doth so, it's their duty to drink it with silence and submission, as here their Lord did before them. Observe 3. The manner of our Lord's prayer in this is agony. And here we may remark, 1. It was a solitary prayer. He went by himself alone out of the hearing of his disciples. The company of our best and dearest friends is not always seasonable. There are times and seasons when a Christian would not be willing that the most intimate friend he has in the world should be with him to hear what passes in secret betwixt him and his God. Again, too, it was a humble prayer. That appears by the postures in which he cast himself, sometimes kneeling, sometimes laying prostrate upon his face. He lies in the very dust, and lower he could not lie, and his heart was as low as his body. 
Three, it was a vehement, fervent, and importune prayer. Such was the fervor of his spirit that he prayed himself into an agony. Oh, let us blush to think how unlike our praying frame of spirit is to Christ's. Lord, what coldness, deadness, drowsiness, formality, and laziness is found in our prayers. How often do our lips move when our hearts stand still? Observe 4. The posture which the disciples were found in when our Lord was praying in his agony. They were fast asleep. Good God! Could they possibly sleep at such a time as this? When Christ's soul was exceeding sorrowful, could their eyes be heavy? Learn hence that the very best of Christ's disciples may be, and oftentimes are, overtaken with great infirmities when the most important duties are performing. Then cometh he to his disciples, and findeth them sleeping. Observe 5. The mild, meek, and gentle rebuke which he gives to his disciples for their sleeping. He says unto them, Why sleep ye? Could ye not watch with me one hour? What, not watch when your master was in such danger? Could ye not watch with me when I was going to lie down my life for you? What, not one hour, and that the parting hour too? Learn hence that the holiest and best resolved Christians, who have willing spirits for Christ and his service, yet in regard to the weakness of the flesh and the frailty of human nature, it is their duty to watch and pray, and thereby guard themselves against temptations. Rise and pray, lest ye enter into, etc. Verses 47-52 through And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude... And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them, and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest, and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests, and captains of the temple, and the elders, which were come to him, Be you come out as against a thief, with swords and stabs? When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour, and the power of darkness. Burkett notes, It was the lot and portion of our blessed Savior here, we find, to be betrayed into the hands of his mortal enemies, by the treachery of a false and disassembling friend. And in the sad relation before us, we have observable, the traitor, the treason, the manner how, and the time when, his treasonable design was executed. Observe 1. The traitor, Judas. All the evangelists carefully describe him by his name, Judas, Judas Iscariot, lest he should be mistaken for Jude, the brother of James, and by his office, one of the twelve. Lord, now ought the greatest professors to look well to themselves and to the grounds and principles of their profession, for a profession begun in hypocrisy will certainly end in apostasy. Observe, too, the occasion of the treason, covetousness, or the inordinate love of worldly wealth, and accordingly the devil lays a temptation before him exactly suited to his temper and inclination, and it instantly overcame him. Learn hence that persons are never in such imminent danger of falling into sin as when they meet with temptations exactly suited to their master lust. O oh, pray we that God would keep us from temptations suited to our predominant lusts and corruptions. Observe 3. The treason of Judas, 
he led on an armed multitude to the place where Christ was, gave them a signal to discover him by, and bids them lay hands upon him and hold him fast. Which treason of Judas was attended with these black and hellish aggravations? He had been a witness of our Savior's miracles, and hearer of our Lord's doctrine. What he did was not by solicitation. The chief priest did not send to him, but he went to them. Lord, how dangerous it is to allow ourselves in any secret sin. None can say how far that one sin may in time lead us. Should anyone have told Judas that his covetousness would at last make him deny his Lord and sell his Savior, he would have said with Hazel, Is thy servant a dog that I should do this thing? Observe 4. The endeavor made by the disciples for their master's rescue. One of them, St. Matthew says it was Peter, drew a sword and cut off the ear of Malchus. But why not the ear of Judas, rather? Because though Judas was most faulty, yet Malchus might be most forward to arrest and carry off our Savior. Oh, how does a pious breast boil with indignation at the sight of an open affront offered to its Savior? Yet, though St. Peter's heart was sincere, his hand was too rash. Good intentions are no warrant for irregular actions. And accordingly, Christ, who accepted the affection, reproved the action. To resist authority, even in Christ's own defense, is rash zeal and discountenanced by the gospel. Peter did well to ask his master if he should smite with the sword, but he ought to have stayed his hand till Christ had given him his answer. However, Peter's sin occasioned a miracle from our Savior. Christ heals that ear miraculously, which Peter cut off unwarrantably. Yet the sight of this miracle converted none. Oh, how insufficient are all outward means of conversion without the Spirit's inward operation. Verses 54 through 62. Then they took him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire, and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of an hour after, another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth this fellow also was with him, for he is Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thee saith. And immediately while he spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Burkett notes, This paragraph of the chapter gives us an account of the fall and rising of Peter, of his sin in denying his master, and of his recovery by repentance. Both must be considered distinctly. First, touching his sin and fall, there are four particulars observable relating thereunto, namely, the sin itself, the occasion of that sin, the reiteration and repetition of it, and the aggravating circumstances attending it. Observe 1. The sin itself. The denial of Jesus Christ, his Lord and Master. I know not the man. And this was back with an oath. He swore that he knew him not. Lord, how may the slavish fear of suffering drive the holiest and best of men to commit the foulest and worst of sins? Observe, too, the occasions leading to this sin, and they were these. 1. His following Christ afar off. 
To follow Christ was the effect of Peter's faith, but to follow him afar off at this time was the fruit of fear and the effect of frailty. Woe unto us when temptation comes if we be far from Christ's gracious presence and assistance. Two is being in bad company amongst Christ's enemies. Would we escape temptation to sin, we must then decline such company as would allure and draw us into sin. Peter had better have been a cold by himself alone than warming himself at a fire which was encompassed in the blasphemies of the multitude, where his conscience, though not seared, was yet made hard. Another occasion of Peter's failing was a presumptuous confidence of his own strength and standing. Though all men forsake ye, yet I will not. O Lord, to presume upon ourselves is the ready way to provoke thee to leave us to ourselves. If ever we stand in the day of trial, tis the fear of falling that must enable us to stand. We soon fall if we believe it impossible to fall. Observe 3. The reiteration and repetition of this sin. He denied Christ again and again. He denies him first with a lie, then with an oath, and next with a curse. Lord, how dangerous it is not to resist the first beginnings of sin. If we yield to one temptation, Satan will assault us with more and stronger. Peter proceeded from a denial to a lie, from a lie to an oath, from an oath to an imprecation and curse. It is our wisdom vigorously to resist sin at the beginning, for then we have most power and sin has least. Observe 4. The heinous and aggravating circumstances of St. Peter's sin, and they are these. 1. The character of this person, a disciple, an apostle, a chief apostle, a special favorite, who with James and John had the special honor to be with Christ at his transfiguration. Yet he denies Christ. 2. The person whom he denies, his master, his savior and redeemer. He that in great humility had washed Peter's feet, had ate the Passover with Peter, had given but just before the holy sacrament to Peter, Yet is this kind and condescending Savior denied by Peter. 3. Consider the persons before whom he denied Christ, the chief priest's servants. Oh, how surprising and yet very pleasing was it to them to see one disciple betray and sell his master and another disown and deny him. 4. Consider the time when he denied him. It was but a few hours after he had received the holy sacrament from Christ's own hand. How unreasonable, then, is their objection against coming to the Lord's table, that some who go to it dishonor Christ as soon as they come from it. Such examples ought not to discourage us from coming to the ordinance, but should excite and increase our watchfulness after we've been there, that our after-deportment may be suitable to the solemnity of a sacramental table. Observe 5. What a small temptation he lay under, thus shamefully to deny his Lord and Master. A damsel only at first spake to him, had a band of armed soldiers appeared to him, and apprehended him, had he been bound and led away to the judgment hall, and there threatened with the sentence of ignominious death, some excuse might have been made better for him. But to disown his relation to Christ upon a word spoken by a sorry maid that kept the door, the smallness of the temptation was a high aggravation of the crime. Ah, Peter, how little didst thou answer thy name at this time! Thou art not now a rock, but a reed, a pillar blown down by a woman's breath. O frail humanity, whose strength is weakness and infirmity. Note here that in most of the saints' falls recorded in Scripture, 
first enticed her to sin, or the accidental occasions of it, were women. Witness, besides the first fall, that of Adam's, where the woman was first in the transgression, the fall of Lot, Samson, David, Solomon, and Peter. These are sad instances of the truth of what I speak. A weak creature may be a strong tempter. Nothing is too impotent or useless for the devil's service. It was a great aggravation of Peter's sin that the voice of a poor maid that kept the door should be of more force to overcome him than his faith in Jesus to sustain him. But what shall we say? Small things are sufficient to cast us down if God doth not help us up. We sink under any burden if God sustain us not, and yield to the least temptation if he leaves us to ourselves. A damsel shall make a disciple shrink, and a doorkeeper shall be able to drive an apostle before her. This is the account, in short, of Peter's fall, considered in itself and with the circumstances relating to it. Now follows his recovery and rising again by repentance, and here we have observable the suddenness of his repentance, the means of his repentance, and the manner of his repentance. Observe one, the suddenness of St. Peter's repentance. As his sin was sad, so was his repentance speedy. Sin committed by surprise, and through the prevalency of a temptation that suddenly assaults us, is much sooner repented of than where the sin is presumptuous and deliberate. David's murder and adultery were deliberate acts of sin in which he lay almost twelve months without any solemn repentance for them. St. Peter's denial was hasty and sudden, under a violent pang and passion of fear, and he takes the warning of the cock's crowing to go forth speedily and weep for his transgression. Observe, too, the means of his repentance, which was twofold. The less principal mean was the crowing of the cock. The more principal means were Christ's looking upon Peter and Peter's remembering the words of Christ. 1. The less principal means of St. Peter's rising and recovery by repentance was the crowing of the cock. As the voice of the maid occasioned him to sin, so the voice of the cock occasioned him to reflect that God, who always can work without means, can ever, when he pleases, work by weak and contemptible means, and open the mouth of a bird or a beast for the conversion of a man. But why does our Lord make use of the crowing of a cock as a means of bringing St. Peter into repentance? There is ever some mystery in Christ's institutions and instruments. The cock was a preacher to call St. Peter to his duty, there being something of emblem between a cock and a preacher. The preacher ought to have the wings of the cock to rouse himself from drowsiness and security and to awaken others to a sense of their duty. He must have the watchfulness of the cock to be ever ready to discover and forewarn danger. He must have the voice of the cock to cry aloud, to tell Israel of their sin, to terrify the roaring lion of hell, and to make him tremble, as they say the natural lion does. In a word, he must observe the hours of the cock, to crow at all seasons, to preach the word in season and out of season. Again, too, the more principal means of St. Peter's recovery were Christ's looking upon Peter and Peter's remembering the words of Christ. 1. Christ's looking upon Peter. Our Savior looked upon Peter before either Peter looked upon our Savior or upon himself. Oh, wonderful act of love and grace towards this fallen disciple. Christ was now upon his trial for his life, a time when our thoughts would have been wholly taken up about ourselves. But even then did Christ find leisure to think upon Peter, to remember his disconsolate disciple, to turn himself about, 
and give him a pitiful but piercing look, even a look that melted and dissolved them into tears. We never begin to lament our sins till we are first lamented by our Savior. Jesus looked upon Peter. That was the first, more principal means of his repentance. But two, the other means was Peter's remembering the words of the Lord, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me. Now this remembrance was an applicative and feeling remembrance. He remembered the prediction of Christ and applied it sensibly to himself, teaching us that the efficacy of Christ's word in order to sound repentance depends not upon the historical remembrance of it, but upon the close application of it to every man's conscience. Observe 3. The manner of St. Peter's repentance. It was secret, it was sincere, it was lasting and abiding. 1. It was secret. He went out and wept. He sought a place of retirement where he might mourn in secret. Solitariness is most agreeable to an afflicted spirit. Yet, I must add, as St. Peter's sorrow, so probably his shame, might cause him to go forth and weep. Christ looked upon him, and how ashamed must he have been to look upon Christ, seeing he had so lately denied that he had ever seen him. Two, St. Peter's repentance was sincere. He wept bitterly. His grief was extraordinary, his tears abundant. There's always a weeping that must follow sin. Sin must cost the soul sorrow, either here or in hell. We must now either mourn a while or lament forever. Doubtless, St. Peter's tears were joined with a hearty confession of sin to God and smart reflections on himself after this manner. Lord, what have I done? I, a disciple, I, an apostle, I that did so lately acknowledge my master to be Christ the Lord, I that spoke with so much assurance, though all men may deny thee, I will not. I that promised to lay down my life for his sake, yet have I denied him, yet have I, with oaths and imprecations, disowned him, and this at the voice of a damsel, not at the sight of a drawn sword presented at my breast. Lord, what weakness and wickedness, what unfaithfulness have I been guilty of? Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep all my days for the fault of this one night. Thus may we suppose our lapsed apostle to have bemoaned himself, and happy was it for him that he did so, for blessed are the tears of a converted revolter, and happy is the misery of the mourning offender. Observe 3. St. Peter's repentance was not only secret and sincere, but lasting and abiding. He retained a very quick sense and lively remembrance of his sin upon his mind all his life after. Ecclesiastical history reports that ever after, when Peter heard the crowing of the cock, he fell upon his knees and wept. Others say that he was wont to rise at midnight and spend the time in prayer and humiliation between cock crowing and daylight. And the papists, who delight to turn everything into folly and superstition, first began that practice of setting up what we call weathercocks upon towers and steeples, to put people in mind of Peter's fall and repentance by that signal. Lastly, St. Peter's repentance was attended with an extraordinary zeal and forwardness for the service of Christ to the end of his days. He had a burning love towards the Holy Jesus ever after, which is now improved into a sapphiric flame. Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee, says he himself. John twenty-one seventeen. And as an evidence of it, he fed Christ's sheep. 
For in the Acts of the Apostles, we read of his extraordinary diligence to spread the gospel, and his travels in order thereunto are computed by some to be 950 miles. To end all, have any of us fallen with Peter, though not with a formal abjuration, yet by a practical denying of him? Let us go forth and weep with him. Let us be more vigilant and watchful over ourselves for the time to come. Let us express more fervent love and zeal for Christ, more diligence in his service, more concertedness for his honor and glory. This would be a happy improvement of this example. God grant it may have that blessed effect. Verses 63 to 65. And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face, and asked him, saying, Prophesize, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. Burkett notes, Observe here the vile affronts, the horrid abuses, the injuries and indignities which were put upon the holy and innocent Jesus in the day of his suffering. The rude officers and servants spit in his face, blindfolded his eyes, smote him with their hands, and in contempt and scorn bid him to prophesize who it was that smote him. Verily there is no degree of contempt, no mark of shame, no kind of suffering, which we ought to decline for Christ's sake, who hid not his face from shame and spitting upon our account. Verses 66 through 71. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. Burkett notes. Observe here, 1. Christ was judged and tried before a court that had no authority to judge or try him. Verse 66, they led him into their council. This was their great sahedrum or ecclesiastical court, which, according to its first constitution, was to consist of seventy grave, honorable, and learned men, who were to judge impartially for God, according to Numbers 11.16. But this, alas, consisted of a malicious pack of scribes and Pharisees, men full of malice and revenge, and over these Caiaphas now presided, a head fit for such a body. But though there was at our Savior's trial a face of a court amongst them, yet their power was much abridged by the Romans, so they could not hear or determine, neither judge nor condemn, in capital matters. Observe next, the indictment of blasphemy is brought in against him. What need we any further witness? We have heard his blasphemy. Abominable wickedness. It is not in the power of the greatest and most unspotted innocency to protect from slander and false accusation. Observe farther, the great meekness of our Savior under all these ill suggestions and false accusations. As a lamb before the shearers, so is he dumb and openeth not his mouth. Learn, thence that to bear the revilings, contradictions, and false accusations of men with a silent and submissive spirit is an excellent and Christ-like temper. Though a trial for his innocent life was now managed most maliciously and illegally against him, yet when he was reviled, he reviled not again. 
When he suffered, he threatened not. O may the same meek and humble mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who instead of reviling his accusers, prayed for his murderers, and offered up his blood to God on the behalf of them that shed it. Lord Jesus, help us to set thy instructive example continuously before us, and to be daily correcting and reforming our lives by that blessed pattern. Amen.